Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. Happy New Year. It's my first Sunday back, so I know it's January 13th, but for me, seeing you now, it's Happy New Year, and it's really great to see you all. It's my first Sunday back, so I can still say it. And I've still been seeing and hearing, whether it's commercials or on social media, uh, still been seeing a lot about New Year's resolutions and uh, how people are doing well or not doing so well, some doing better than others, and keeping what they resolved to change about themselves in 2019. I didn't make any New Year's resolutions. I'm that guy. So I'm either doing really well or terribly, depending on how you might uh, score that at home. The interesting thing about resolutions that, that get made this time of year, I don't know if you ever noticed this, is really, the, to me, it's the questions that people are asking about themselves. The questions that people are asking about themselves. And I would like to submit to you that the question of a resolution is not really, what can I change? I think on a surface level, I think it might resonate, what can I change? But I would say the question of a resolution is really, who am I? Who am I? How am I going to be? Will I be a person who is healthier? Will I be a person who shows up on time or binges slightly less on Netflix or whatever? Who's the person I'm going to be? So it's not what can I change, it's who am I? And that's the heart of a resolution. It's what makes me up. What am I going to be? And while we might not all make resolutions, we do all ask that question at some point. Who am I? What makes me up? What am I going to be? What's the anatomy of who I am? So this is our opening preaching series of 2019, and we've decided to focus on something that's core and crucial to who we are at Church in the City, and that is one of our core values. All of us for Jesus. All of us for Jesus. We like to say it's kind of the first, the chief value, one value to rule them all. And it it flows in, in relationship to our banner statement, our vision statement, which you've seen this morning, all of Jesus for everyone. If all of Jesus for everyone, Chicago, our neighborhoods, uh, our, our nation and the nations is going to be a reality, then all of us must be fully submitted to and following Jesus. So we've called our series All In, All In. And why? Well, all of, G- all of us for Jesus or all of me for Jesus, to make it more personal, is an anatomy statement. It's an anatomy statement, like a resolution. It's who am I? What is my essence? What's my core? Who are we as a church? So after unpacking our vision and values this past year, I think it's a perfect time to revisit this question. Last week, Aiden kicked us off by reminding us of the crucial truth of God's sovereignty and lordship. It's the reality that God is God, he is Lord, and we can rest actually in that truth, be satisfied actually in that truth, today, tomorrow, and always. And I love what Aiden shared because it prompts a very essential question, that who am I question, who am I, will I be someone who is satisfied with God being God? And today we're going to ask another who am I question as we unpack all of us for Jesus. And that who am I question is this, will I be a worshiper of God? Will I be a worshiper of God? Now, I know the subject of worship, especially in American Christianity, is so vast. And probably all the minds and hearts in the room probably just went to a billion different places. Maybe you love the topic of worship. Maybe you were watching the band play and going, I could do that. I just want to do that. That is my jam. No pun intended. That just came out of nowhere. Like, but that, that's, I love it. I love it. I love to worship. 
and you just got really excited about the next 20, 25 minutes. <laughs> maybe worship to you only means singing and songs, and maybe that's not where you resonate. And so maybe it's something that you kind of recoil back from, and you go, ah, that's not really my thing. And, and maybe today we'll discover that worship means much more than this. Maybe you hear any preaching on a one single topic and you wish that preaching was less topical and more expository out of scripture and you're just like, I don't want any none of that feelings-based nonsense and boy, do I have a surprise sermon for you because we're going straight to the scriptures today. But whatever you're feeling about worship, the idea of worshiping God, I think we can share in a question today. If you haven't noticed, I'm all about questions. I, when I'm reading the word, I'm always asking questions because questions are fair for everybody. Everybody can bring a question. And here's the question I want to bring today. Is there a biblical picture? Is there a biblical anatomy of worship? Because if there is, I want it. How are biblical worshipers made? And in light of asking who we are, this all of us for Jesus moment, this resolution moment, this who am I moment, we need to ask, can we be worshipers of God? And what effect is that going to have on our lives? And is worshiping God something that we should pursue? That's where we're going to be today. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Everything that we read will be on the screen behind me as well. And the reason why we're going to Isaiah chapter 6 today is we are going to witness in the Bible what I would like to call the making of a worshiper. We're going to witness the making of a worshiper, the man Isaiah. Not just witnessing acts of worship, but the making of a worshiper. The very birthing of a giving over of oneself to God, hence the core of that value, all of us for Jesus. You guys okay? So Isaiah was a prophet. Isaiah chapter 6, you'll notice, is conveniently located behind Isaiah's chap- Isaiah chapters 1 through 5. And in Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, we've already seen that Isaiah is a prophet. He has a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and he's already begun to declare that vision. He is walking in his calling. He's walking in his gifting. Isaiah is a fully functioning prophet of the Lord God Most High in the first five chapters. But something happens in Isaiah chapter 6. Something happens. So much that Isaiah has to share it. And we're going to look at what that is. Something more, something of this becoming a worshiper. And my prayer today is that what we see happen to Isaiah will not be esoteric and old to us. It will be near and readily next to us because it's the biblical anatomy of how a worshiper is made. And that God intends us to worship him. And that not only God intends us to worship him, but God makes the way for us to worship him. So as we remind ourselves of who we are, I want us to deepen that reality of worshiping God. And we're going to do that by following the interaction between God and Isaiah. So hopefully you're at Isaiah 6. It'll be on the screen behind me. Let's read the first four four verses and see what's going on uh, with Isaiah here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Just a little breakfast reading on a Sunday morning at church, right into the throne room of heaven. This vision provides Isaiah with something crucial and foundational for the making of a worshiper, and that is a revelation of God. Those four incredible words, I saw the Lord. May we never gloss over those. I saw the Lord. So I want to submit to you that the anatomy of worship firstly requires a revelation of God. The anatomy of worship starts with a revelation of who God is, his character, his might, his holiness, his eternity, his omnipotence, his, his incredible creativity, his love, his justice, the full character of his very being. And although Isaiah was a prophet, although Isaiah was functioning as a prophet of God, declaring the word of the Lord to the people of Judah, this shatters him. I saw the Lord. The words of the text, they, they feel like they're struggling to hold on to God's glory, don't they? Like, like, like we're trying to use our words, our human words, to somehow describe the magnitude of what Isaiah is seeing. Isaiah's observations are jaw-dropping. I'm just going to go back through them really quickly here. He's, he's, he's taken to a vast temple and throne room. A vast temple and throne room. And the robe that God wears, the robe, we're not even talking about God himself, just the robe, the train of his robe, fills the entire temple, fills the entire temple. Seraphim, what, what? Seraphim, seraphim were understood as angels of fire, the angels that actually flew the closest to God's throne, that could actually stand the closeness of God's presence the most, that's their holiness, so as seraphim are swirling around God's presence, they burn with a passion and a love and a devotion to God every single eternal moment, never stopping. And simultaneously, because of God's holiness, just due to the incredible holiness of God, they have to cover themselves while also flying. That's epically skillful. But that holiness <laughs> makes them not only cover themselves, but the holiness of God makes them continually declare the holiness of God. That close to God's presence. And as they declare God's holiness over and over and over, the very thresholds of the place, the very foundation of heaven begins to rock and shake. I've never experienced an earthquake, but I bet it would be pretty unnerving. I'm just going to go out on a limb. And remember, this isn't even a demonstration of God's holiness. This is just the declaration of God's holiness. This is just seraphim saying, God is holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Everything shakes. Everything's filled with smoke. And there stands Isaiah. There stands Isaiah, gazing on all of this, drinking in the revelation of who God is, drinking in the character of God and what he's like. And I have to think that Isaiah probably agreed. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled of, with his glory. This is a revelation of God. This is a revelation of God. And we're going to come back to this at the end. But it's, there is no kind and gentle revelation of God. This is the throne room of heaven. And can I, be, can I use a word here? And I, I hope it's, even if it's a little uncomfortable, you're okay with it. It's a violent revelation of God. 
It's a mighty, powerful revelation. And God hasn't even spoken. God hasn't even technically engaged the picture yet. It's wondrous and awe-inspiring and mind-blowing. And boy, it feels kind of safe to read about. But Isaiah was there. So let's see how Isaiah responds. Read with me in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, Isaiah says, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah notices something very obvious. He's an incredibly astute observer. He notices that he and God are somewhat different. Isaiah catches not only a revelation of God, but, in, but because of that re- revelation of God, Isaiah begins to get a revelation of himself. He begins to get a revelation of himself, and that revelation is not awesome. Isaiah's first thoughts are not, this is an awesome throne room. It is super cool, and while God is very holy, I bet he's a totally laid-back guy, and because I'm, I'm I think he might be really gracious. He'll probably be cool with me being here. And because have you met me? I'm his, I'm his super special, meaningful creation. He loves me dearly. He's so glad I'm here. And I can't wait to tell others about how I visited his throne room. And maybe I can get a selfie <laughs> with him. Boy, doesn't that just feel almost blasphemous to even talk that way? It does to me. That's not where Isaiah goes. No, in catching a revelation of God, Isaiah catches a revelation of himself. And that's a necessary step in the making of a worshiper. The anatomy of worship requires a revelation not only of who God is, but of who we are. And I want to take a brief pause here. I am not advocating self-loathing. I'm not advocating that we should hate ourselves and God doesn't love us and woe is us and making a case for, for uh, us dogging on ourselves all day because of the character of God. Remember, we are watching the process of a worshiper being made, and we're not finished with it yet. So the revelation of God gives Isaiah a, just a very clear, honest revelation of himself, and his revelation is, woe to me unmitigated despair and disaster be visited upon my head. Woe is a zero-sum word. It's not maybe I can get out of here. It's woe to me. Immediately, Isaiah speaks of himself. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. It's a revelation of himself. A revelation of God and a resulting revelation of ourselves. And this is not the only place in Scripture where we have to come to grips with this revelation. It's all throughout the Bible. Almost probably most famously in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. Exactly what Isaiah is experiencing. He's realizing, I do in fact fall short. I do in fact fall short. And I want to say this. While that revelation of ourselves is not pretty, it's also not where God intends us to remain. It's not where God intends us to remain. If we said, thank you for coming right now, appreciate it, there's coffee in the lobby and we will see you next week, that, what? That's woe unto me. But that's not where we are. Let's see the interaction between God and Isaiah as it continues in verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin 
is atoned for. This moment, <laughs> we already described what seraphim are to the best of our ability. I've never seen one. If you have, I hope you got a picture and then you can show me. But like, this moment is harrowing. This moment is surprising. It's nerve-wracking. It's, it's also desperately desired and, and somewhat relieving at the end, is it not? It's that all at once. But the seraphim briefly leaves the presence of the, his closeness to the throne of God comes to the altar, begins to interact with Isaiah, and you have to, Isaiah has to be thinking, this is it, I'm dead, this is the moment. We read this and go, we know what he's going to do, that seraphim's going to go right up and purify Isaiah. I love this passage of scripture, it's on my fridge. That can't be what Isaiah's thinking. Sorry, he's in the throne room of God, watching this, and then just, just be him for a second. To the altar, hot coal coming towards you, you're done. This is the moment. And you know what? Not only is this the moment, you deserve it. This is actual justice. And it's holy and righteous. And you know it. You've already said, woe unto you. But what happens instead? At the very moment of judgment, at the intersection of holiness and justice, God intercepts fear by exercising grace And provides redemption. You see a revelation of God. And the resulting revelation of ourselves. Can only really produce fear. (laughs) And in the moment. When that fear should be consummated. With our eradication. God says actually there's grace and redemption available. Because he doesn't intend us to stay there. He intends redemption for everyone. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As damning as that statement is. Romans 3.24 is as wonderful. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Side note for free, interesting study to go through scripture and read the verses after all your favorite verses. The John 3.17s, the Romans 3.24s of the world, it'll rock you. As damning as Romans 3.23 is, Romans 3.24, all are justified freely by the grace given through the redemption of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus in a picture right here in the Old Testament between a seraphim and Isaiah. God is holy. We are not. Jesus took our unholiness upon himself and he died for it. Because remember, woe unto me. That is the only just response to unholiness. And God raised him from the dead, and Jesus ascended to heaven. And if we say to him, Jesus, be master, be Lord, be savior of my life, he will enter our life, he will enter our heart, he will do as we have asked, and he will never leave us. And and we will be holy and blameless in God's sight. As the seraphim said to Isaiah, your sin is atoned for. You have no guilt. This is mind-boggling what's happening here. In the very throne room of heaven. It's God's intention for us revealed later in the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians. When the apostle Paul writes. And you also were included. Listen to this phrase. In Christ. When you heard the message of truth. The gospel of your salvation. You didn't just hear. When you believed. You were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Until the redemption of those who are God's possession. 
to the praise of his glory. I'm going to go out on a limb again and say the God in that throne room, when he makes a deposit guaranteeing, he's good on his guarantee. God doesn't intend for us to stay in the place of fearful revelation of ourselves because of a revelation of him. God intends redemption to invade the anatomy of worship. God intends redemption to invade the anatomy of worship. It's a change in our response to who God is. It's a change in our response to the glory and presence of God. It allows the change from fear, woe to me, I am a man, I am a woman of unclean lips. There's no way out of this for me. It it allows the change from that fear to identity. That that same holy God that, that my just doing away with rested on, now the fullness of my identity and redemption rests upon him too. It rests upon him too. This is the anatomy, the making of a worshiper, and God intends redemption to be key to it. It's a new revelation of who we are in light of being redeemed. So if the anatomy of worship requires a revelation of God, and the anatomy of worship requires a revelation of who we are, and God intends redemption to invade the making of a worshiper, what happens when this kind of groundwork is laid? Worship happens. Worship happens. And it's not just a song, and it's not just a moment, and it's not just an act, and it's not just momentary in our day. It's not just knowing things about God or even doing what God says. It's devotion to him. Worship is devotion to God. And so whatever the word worship first conjured up for you, excitement, fear, brushing it off, or or really hungry, whatever, whatever, whatever it first brought up for you, every single one of us is capable of devotion. Every single one of us is capable of devotion. So all of us for Jesus is the ultimate statement of devotion. All of us for Jesus means that no one is excluded from devotion to him. And we actually see Isaiah himself respond to de- in, in devotion to God. Let's finish this passage in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? God has, God has if I can use this phrase, a need to send someone. You guys understand what I'm saying there? Not that God needs us, but God has a need to send someone. In his mission, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. Boy, how this picture has turned. (laughs) How this picture has turned. The anatomy of worship is fully expressed by devotion to God. The anatomy of worship is fully consummated, completed, expressed by devotion to God. Isaiah hears the Lord. Another thing I hope we don't gloss over, I saw the Lord, I heard the voice of the Lord. Don't read fast. Isaiah hears the Lord and responds in devotion. And that statement, here I am, send me, again, it's not a slogan. We we make it a little bit of a slogan statement sometime. It's an incredible statement of devotion. It's a worshipful statement. God has a commission to give Isaiah, and, and he desires Isaiah's devotion, Isaiah's worship. Devotion is the purest kind of obedience because it's not compulsory. Devotion is pure obedience. It's born out of adoration for someone. Devotion is obedience from the position I have. 
instead of obedience for a position I want. We spent the better part of the fall teaching through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was expounding upon the the characteristics of the kingdom of God and explaining those to, to his hearers. And one of the things that Jesus did almost more than anything else was he would show a picture of the kingdom of God and he would contrast the kingdom of God with the lifeless rat race of religion of the day. And that lifeless rat race of religion still exists today. And the heart of the rat race of religion is earning towards God, getting God's attention, holding righteousness for myself, achieving it, and making sure I stay there. That's compulsory. But even in this moment, in the throne room of God, Isaiah has the freedom to respond from position because his sins have been atoned for. And he can freely, with full devotion and adoration, say, here I am. Send me. Two verses ago, it was woe unto me. Now it's here I am. Send me. Worship is the freedom to express uninhibited devotion. Every moment of every day, in every interaction, whether it's worship time at a church, or now, or the rest of your day. Here I am, send me. Devotion to God. I would like to submit to you that worship is a life posture in that way. It's more than a mindset. It's more than a philosophy. It's more than the the flavor of my life. It's a life posture. And all of us for Jesus is a life posture for us as a church. All of us for Jesus. It's a worshipful posture. It's a devotion posture. And and as we bring this into a landing, I'm going to hand it over back to Aiden in just a moment. I want to challenge us with three questions. And I didn't pick these arbitrarily. These, and I'll tell you more at the end, have been rocking me as I've been studying this because this has exposed me to myself. Doesn't the word of God do that? Three questions to challenge us. All of us for Jesus, devoted worshipers. Firstly, do I have, do you have a continual, renewed revelation of who God is? Do we have a continually renewed revelation of who God is? Here's here's why. We got one today, and we need to remind ourselves. My oldest daughter, Amelia, just turned nine this past week. One of the things that we got her, don't laugh, we're not this cheap, but we got her an email address. We spared no expense. No, but she, she, amongst other things, she got the privilege of now, it's connected to our emails. We, we, we're helping to teach her, and she loves emailing. And emailing, emailing is a new thing to my nine-year-old daughter, and it's so new, she has a fresh revelation of emailing, let me tell you. It's like, Dad, can I check my email? And she checks it, and then she, has, she and I have a thing where we're emailing each other, and we, we tell each other about our day, and we ask how we can pray for each other, and... It's so when she emails me, it's like, you know, hey, dad, how's it going? I'm just, you, know, you maybe check your inbox or whatever. It's just like probably something in there. Just, just check it. It's cool. Just, you know, I'm like, okay. I'll. Emailing to me and to you some of you have emailed me since I've started this sermon, some of you are emailing me right now. Which is fine, but email to you and me, it's a functional thing. It's like, I mean, right? It's emailing. 
But Amelia has a fresh revelation of emailing. I wonder if we get too familiar with God. I wonder if we get so familiar with God that we get unfamiliar with God. I'm not saying that we need to walk around whipping ourselves with our heads covered. That's not the response to God. But I am saying this. God is not our bud. It's not. I mean, it's not. But remember, remember, that doesn't have to provoke fear anymore. It provokes, it provokes awe. We need to resist the checkbox nature of our culture to say, I got the revelation of God. I took that class. That is done. I remember when it happened. I'm good now. I'm super mature. I'm a pretty sophisticated believer in Jesus. And, um, and I, you know, God, God, knows, God knows that I'm in awe of him. Just like, you know, I married my wife 12 and a half years ago. She knows I love her. It's like, come on. She knows. Totally. I'm walking home. We get too familiar with God. I've challenged myself to wake up and literally before I get out of bed, usually being smacked by a kid, that the first words out of my mouth, I wonder what this will do to my heart going forward. And maybe it's, I'm not, I'm not prescribing anything. I'm just saying a revelation that I've had is I'm saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that's going to make it from here more and more and more and more and more and more down to here. God, just give me that fresh revelation of you because I don't have to react in fear anymore. Do we have a continual renewed revelation of who God is? Do we have a continual renewed redeemed revelation of who we are? Do we sit in Romans 3.23 without reading verse 24? Or do we preach the gospel to ourselves every single day? Again, not a slogan. Get it out of familiarity wrote repetition, not a slogan, preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, a fresh reminder of redemption. It's not woe unto me, it's here am I, send me. Because he has touched us and atoned for our guilt. And I'm not sorry. Do we have a continually redeemed, renewed revelation of who we are? And that leads to the distilled question of a worshiper. This is, to me, I don't have a tattoo, but I'm thinking of this one. (laughs) What is the immediate, radical devotion to Jesus in every moment? What's the immediate, radical devotion to Jesus? Not immediate for immediate sake or radical for radical's sake, but if it requires either of them, it's for Jesus' sake. What's the immediate, radical devotion to Jesus Not, how do I feel about it? Not, am I good at it? Not, I don't think I'm the right one. What's the immediate radical devotion to Jesus? That's the worship question. That's the all of us for Jesus question. That's the who am I question. That's the here am I, send me. That's the devotion question. That is the church in the city question. What's the immediate radical devotion to Jesus? I wonder if, as I bring this to a close, I wonder if you might repent with me for a moment. And I'm saying with me. In fact, I'm going to come down here because I'm really not that tall. (laughs) Five, ten and a half right here. I wonder, and and this is, I'm doing this for my sake and I'm inviting you to join me. I have, I've come stark face to face with my need to repent of familiarity with God. You get what I mean when I say that? 
not knowing God, but too familiar with God to the point where I'm unfamiliar with him. For the wrong view of myself and for not having a posture of what is devotion to Jesus, immediate and radical in every moment. I'm repenting of that. I wonder if you might stand with me if that's something that you want to repent of as well. No, remember, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is not a condemnation moment. This is us, this is an all of us for Jesus moment. Lord, we, no, we just need to be quiet for a minute. I believe even right now that the might of God is coupling with the gentleness of God to reveal to hearts. And I want to encourage anyone, if if there's condemnation coming upon you, it's not from the Lord. We say go in the name of Jesus. If there's conviction coming upon you and and an invitation, that's the spirit of God. Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of of your glory. May we never be a church that is so familiar that we get comfortable with the idea, that we get nonchalant with the idea of your might and your power and your justice and your holiness and your love and your righteousness. May we never be a church, Lord God, who wallows without an identity in you. Who walks in worthlessness corporately or individually because of a distance from you. Instead, you desire our redemption and you have given it to those who know your son, Lord, the Lord Jesus. Lord, may we be a church who says, what is immediate radical devotion to Jesus? And I personally, Lord, repent I turn in the name of Jesus away from from my heart that has chosen otherwise so many times. We want to be worshipers, God, in every way, devoted from a position of knowing you and being secure in you. All of us for Jesus. All of us for Jesus. For the sake of all of Jesus for everyone. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us. Church in the City. All of Jesus for everyone.